Hi there. My name is Andrew Leadham. I'm an associate director here at Inspiratia. Welcome to episode two of Everything About Hydrogen, a show that converts the technical to the relatable and explores how hydrogen might change the energy world as we know it. As always, I'm excited to have with me Chris Jackson and Patrick Malloy, who'll be co-hosting with me throughout the series. Chris is a hydrogen and fuel cell consultant working for the World Bank and Inspiratia, amongst others. Patrick is a senior associate with the Rocky Mountain Institute's Sunshine for Minds program here in Washington, D.C. This week, we will be joined by Nicholas Picard from Ballard Power Systems. And uh, Chris Jackson and I are going to interview him and talk a bit about what Ballard is up to and what the hydrogen market looks like from their perspective. And then later, when Patrick decides to come and do some work with us. I was kind of hoping I wasn't going to be called out for not having been around. But yeah, but that was optimistic. Well, wasn't really? you know. You've you both done it now all, three times. All slackers hope they're under the radar, Patrick. He and I and Chris will talk about our interview with Nicholas and uh, some other current topics. Hi, Nicholas. It's Chris Jackson here. How are you? Hi, Nicholas. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing good. Uh, thank you very much for your time. All right. So, uh, Nicholas, we'll just start with the big picture question about Ballard. You know, explain to our subscribers who Ballard are and uh, why investors have been sticking with Ballard for, uh, for over 40 years. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, Ballard is a technology developer, a fuel cell technology developer. Uh, the company was actually founded 40 years ago in 1979 by uh, Jeffrey Ballard. Initially, the company worked on uh, battery technology, innovative battery technology, lithium battery, which was very new 40 years ago. But very rapidly in the mid-80s, in, mid in 93, actually, the company took on a development program funded by the Canadian and American U.S. government to develop fuel supplement fuel cell technology, one of the fuel cell technology, which was a bit dormant. It was initially developed by GE, but nobody really paid attention to it. And um, Ballard started to work on it and very rapidly discovered that there's a lot of potential, that the, the technology was able to produce a lot of power, uh, which could be used for mobility. And that was very the key uh, from the beginning, the key focus on Ballard is to develop this technology, fuel cell technology, using hydrogen as a fuel for mobility. And, and Nicholas, just to 80s, jump in a little bit there, when you say mobility, can you flesh out a little bit what you meant by mobility at the time? I mean, did that mean yes. just cars? Was that trucks, planes, buses? How broad was mobility at the time? I think it started initially with cars and buses. That was the first focus of Ballard in the early days and uh, minivans, so uh, started initially, actually the first vehicle we put on the road in 93 was a bus. It was the first fuel cell bus ever built in Vancouver, it was, and we chose the bus because it's a vehicle large enough, but also it's a vehicle iconic enough that you can take on board, I think the founders are very clever that using a bus you can demonstrate, take politicians on board, invite people, ride the bus, and, and also because of the space you have in the bus, it was less challenging. After that, they went on to automotive. And during the uh, 90s, uh, late 90s, uh, you know, early 2000s, Ballard worked with probably most of the all major OEMs, automotive OEMs, uh, in order to start developing the first prototype and concept of fuel cell cars. And at the time, we had a 
external. Uh, we had uh, investors like uh, Daimler and Ford were part of Palabel, so we work with Nissan and others to really put the first fuel cell cars on the road. Started in the late 90s through uh, the, uh, the mid 2000. That was really that area of uh, demonstrator proving that actually fuel cell works and that fuel cell can be used into vehicle. Just a question maybe, Nicholas, on that then. I mean, um, obviously, as you say, like the first fuel cell bus is 1993. We're here in 2019, you know, and we've you talked about some of the fuel cell vehicles that you were working on in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Why, why has it taken so long to get fuel cell electric vehicles on the road? I mean, even today, we've only got, what, 11,000, 13,000 fuel cell electric vehicles on the road. So what's kind of been behind that? You know, given that Ballard's been in this industry for such a long time and you have that unique sort of exposure to the development of this industry. Maybe you can explain why it's taken so long for that to kind of develop out. I think it's a really good question. First of all, you know, 20, 25, if you look at the first vehicle on the road in, you know, 93, and now we're into, you know, it's 26 years. When you look at technology development cycle, it's not that long, especially if you look at uh, computers, how long it took for computers to go from the big mainframe in the 40s to have a personal computer in everybody's hand. So I think it's not that long. But I think what is very key, I think what was missing when we we did the uh, initial uh, uh, fuel cell, uh, uh, small fuel cell vehicle fleet in the uh, in 2000, 2005, is the electrification of the powertrain didn't uh, didn't happen yet. So today, we're in a very different position. So today, since this, you know, 20 years ago, the powertrains have been electrified. So today, you have cost-effective electric motors, which are moving vehicles. And you have also very cost-effective battery technology, which enable to combine fuel cell and batteries and get the best of the electric powertrain. Because batteries are very good at discharging a lot of current very quickly, so they're very good for peak acceleration, and also they're very good to uh, store energy from the brakes to make the vehicle more efficient. Where fuel cell is a bit like your marathon runner, which is really good at delivering a constant amount of uh, power over a longer period of time. So if you add all of three elements together, the electric powertrain, so very efficient, very cost-effective electric motors with battery technology where it is today and fuel cell technology where it is today. Now you really start to have a very powerful situation, which was not the case in the late 90s or early 2000. We had that Ballard kind of use weird components to develop a lot of things. And, and I think some of the key, and, and the problem was everything was very expensive. We have to use uh, larger fuel cell, we had to um, to use the co- all the components of the powertrain without existing. So I think in order to, to do that revolution of electrification of transportation that like we are seeing today, there was other elements which were missing at the time and which is now uh, which are now available. You touched on something there, Nicholas, that I think uh, for our listeners would be particularly interesting uh, because there's a lot of talk around electric mobility, electric vehicles generally today. And one of the factors that, uh, you know, I think is driving this market so dramatically in terms of the rising prominence of, of battery, pure battery electric vehicles is what you mentioned that reducing and declining cost in, uh, in battery cost. So what is the advantage of, of a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle or a bus uh, when compared with the competitive 
pure battery electric vehicle? So first of all, I think a lot of people realize a fuel cell vehicle is an electric vehicle. A fuel cell vehicle works exactly like an electric vehicle. All the parts are the same, except for how do you bring the electron to the, uh, to the motors, which is moving the vehicle. In an electric battery vehicle, uh, energy is stored in the battery, and then the battery provides the energy, the electricity to the, uh, to the uh, motors. In a fuel cell vehicle, energy is stored with a form of hydrogen gas, and then the fuel cell is a charging device. Whether I'm plugging in your vehicle, you generate hydrogen, uh, you generate electricity on board of the vehicle using the fuel cell. So the fuel cell is a power generator that you have on board, and your energy is stored using hydrogen, which is much lighter than battery. And this is really driving to one of the big advantages of a fuel cell. And that is the fact that you can store much more energy on board on a vehicle than you can do with battery because one of the limitations of battery is the weight uh, it takes to store all this energy and the weight is the enemy of mobility. Uh, you need more battery to move a heavier vehicle. So what fuel cell does, it enables to store this energy which is going to provide a lot of autonomy to the vehicle. So a fuel cell vehicle operates they have much less restriction on, on range. They can operate five, six, seven hundred kilometers. It is all depending on how much hydrogen you can store on board the vehicle. And it also enables the vehicle to be refueled very quickly. It takes typically a couple of minutes, uh, three to five minutes to refuel a fuel cell car, and it takes less than 10 minutes to refuel a fuel cell bus, compared to several hours for the equivalent on a battery. So if you look at ways of value proposition for a fuel cell vehicle, it plays a lot when for the heavier the vehicle is, so for bus, for truck, or for the more duty cycle your vehicle is doing, a taxi, a Uber, a car, a transit bus. Because what you need then, you need to have more range. You need to maximize the utilization of your vehicle. If it's a commercial vehicle, um, regarding it's a car or, or a truck, you need to be on the road as much as possible because uh, whenever your vehicle is plugged in, it doesn't generate a any revenue. So you want to minimize the plug-in time, minimize the refueling time, where you maximize the uh, operating range without compromising the payload. And that's very key. A bus transport passenger, not battery, and a truck transport goods, not battery. Sure. No, so Nicholas, I, I guess one of the things that I wanted to just ask was, I mean, so you focus quite a bit on the mobility here, and obviously mobility is, as it were, the kind of um, the kind of glamorous thing in the moment, right? I mean, people conceptually can get their heads around a fuel cell car because, as you say, it's sort of, sort of seen as a derivation on an electric vehicle and a fuel cell bus people are quite familiar with because, as you've mentioned, they've been around a little while. I guess um, one of my questions would be, though, uh, in terms of sort of the most immediate growth opportunities, we can obviously see some of the mobility aspects coming through, but maybe you can talk to some of the broader other immediate or sort of next five-year growth opportunities for fuel cells that aren't exclusively on the light-duty vehicle and on the bus side. I mean, I know when we spoke previously that you'd mentioned Ballard are looking at moving back into stationary power, which was an area that you'd kind of moved away from. Um, and obviously, the portable power side has long been a quite interesting area for a lot of companies. So maybe you can talk a little bit to 
some of the more uh, unconventional mobility applications for fuel cells and also some of the non-mobility applications as well from Ballard's perspective where you're sort of seeing interesting opportunities? Sure. So maybe uh, as in the mobility, maybe uh, one unconventional application we start to see uh, really uh, being of interest uh, is UAVs uh, or drones. So those uh, unmanned vehicles, uh, uh, which especially the commercial ones, so if you're doing pipeline inspection or infrastructure inspection, power line inspection, agricultural drones, um, FUSEN enables to have longer mission time. Batteries are heavy, and of course weight is a big enemy of any flying uh, uh, vehicle. So having a lighter solution, which provides longer flying time, mission time, extend the mission time, there's a lot of interest in using, uh, should we say, for drones and UAVs. On the stationary side, I think what is happening, um, it's all linked uh, with renewable energy. Uh, as you have seen, there's more and more renewable energy being available. Uh, there's a lot of projects deploying large-scale renewable energy on wind, on solar farms, on others. But one of the challenges of renewable energy uh, is the intermittence of it. And sometimes it's produced not at the right time or during the day, and it's produced at the wrong season. So a lot of this energy sometimes gets stranded. You have excess of wind or renewable during the midday, uh, and then you have less during the, uh, the peak hours in the evening when everybody's back home or in wintertime when you need to heat up the houses. So what Schussel does, and in between the link is hydrogen and renewable hydrogen, it's possible to use that uh, excess uh, renewable energy, convert it to hydrogen gas. As uh, an hydrogen becomes your energy carrier and your energy storage medium, it can be stored, it can be put in a pipeline, it can be put in a cave, uh, and then it can be converted back to electricity using a fuel cell, and in this case a stationary fuel cell, Whenever you have a peak demand, so whenever you are 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, demand, then fuel cell can start delivering electricity to the grid. If you have a remote location where electricity you know, is based on a very expensive diesel generator, then the conversion of using renewable energy into electricity using the fuel cell at different time on the combined with energy storage is very powerful. That's what we start to see again the uh, interest of stationary fuel cell combined with the uh, use of uh, renewable hydrogen from renewable energy. Yeah, and Nicholas, uh, I wanted to kind of follow up and because it seems like there are any number of positive and advantageous applications of hydrogen as a storage technology, as a, as a means for powering uh, an electric vehicle. Uh, what from Ballard's standpoint and, and from the market more broadly, what, what do you guys see as being the biggest hurdles, the biggest challenges for hydrogen technology right now? Is it a, a matter of resourcing or is there, are there regulatory hurdles that uh, are problematic or vice versa? What's, uh, what are the big uh, risk factors for you guys or, or problems that you see for hydrogen right now? Well, I think it's really to get hydrogen at, at, uh, available wherever the user needs it, and, and then also having hydrogen at the right cost. Uh, we need to have hydrogen at a parity with diesel and then less than cheaper than diesel, because if you want to convert a fleet operator, a truck operator, a bus operator to use fuel cell, then hydrogen needs to be at a cost uh, which w- will enable that operation. So we need to reach 
first have parity with diesel and then below parity to compete with electric uh, other electric vehicle. Then it needs to be available. So today there's still a, it's available in some region, it's available in some parts of uh, in some application, not everywhere. So there need to be uh, more development in the production of hydrogen uh, at scale. So I think scale is very important. Uh, I think to be able to develop larger scale uh, projects today, it works. Everybody knows fuel cell works and hydrogen works. Now we need to scale up. We need to scale up to drive down the cost and to drive the demand so production can come at a larger scale and that will also uh, reduce the overall cost. Sure. And so, Nicholas, I guess, um, you know, just putting this into sort of layperson's terms, because, uh, you know, one of the things about the market right now is that there is actually a lot of public information on estimates for what sort of cost price points, you know, you're sort of outlining. I mean, I think the last FCEHGAU, the sorry, fuel cell uh, hydrogen joint undertaking that the EU funds came out with something like seven pounds a kilo of hydrogen was the sort of point at which fuel cell buses on a total cost of ownership basis start to make sense. I think for cars, it was a little bit higher. I think it was near eight pounds a kilo. Um, you know, as far as I understand, um, we're not there yet in the markets. Um, you know, I think most forecourts are still a little bit higher than that. But maybe you kind of talk a little bit more to some of those specifics because, you know, again, people who understand the sector will understand that SMR hydrogen delivered straight to a refining customer can be as little as pound fifty or £2 a kilo, you know, and so they'll kind of go, well, okay, how come that's so expensive? Some people who might understand electrolysis will have heard numbers ranging between 10 to 15, maybe even £20 a kilo um, for on-site generation as opposed to delivery. So maybe if you can talk to some of those sort of aspects, I think people would just appreciate it. Our listeners would appreciate it. Absolutely, and I think it's very key. And I think it's really scale. So you're right, all the, all the costs you gave are absolutely, of the price you integrate are, are, are absolutely correct. But I just want to give you an example. We have announced uh, a couple of weeks ago a project in Europe called H2Bus Europe, where uh, as an industry consortium, we came together with a hydrogen producer, distributor, and a bus OEM in order to develop a project so we can deliver the TCO to the, uh, to the bus operator. And one of the targets was to be able to get to these uh, six to seven euros per kilogram. Uh, sorry, I owe my numbers in euros, not in pound. It's okay, we'll uh, forgive you. <laughs> and, and, but uh, we, we, we managed to do it. So we have, we have committed today to deliver, so this consortium has committed to deliver, uh, in the UK, for example, uh, to deliver, to put touring buses on the road, and the, the, the price that the bus operator will be paying in London and uh, other cities, if it is a minimum of 50 buses into a depot, that's very important. Scale is very key. And then having a cluster of maybe around 100, 200 buses in the region, so it's economic to produce hydrogen at a larger scale, from, and it's green hydrogen, so it's going to be, in this case, produced from a wind power on the, along the Thames River, and we were able to deliver hydrogen to the user around this, you know, five to seven pound per kilogram, all inclusive. That's me distribution, dispensing, everything. It's the price that the bus operator will pay. So today we can do that with a little bit of scale. And just maybe uh, digging in, I think that particular project that you announced, um, I think, is uh, focused on the UK, Denmark and Latvia. But one of the bits that caught my eye looking at it was, you know, I think the 
The latest fuel cell drone undertaking project is targeting 450,000 euros a bus by the end of the process. But I believe actually that in the announcement you made um, for a sort of single decker bus, the price was actually even lower. I think it was something like 380,000 euros. And what was eye catching about that was that people were saying at that price point, you're almost equivalent or very, very close to a pure electric bus. And actually at that point, you're also, sorry. Um, you know, just was finish off. And then at that point, you're also really not all that far off a diesel bus either. I mean, on a pure CapEx cost. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, see, in a drive program was 650,000 euros t- today, uh, whereas this program would drive the price down to less than 375,000 euros for a single deck 12 meter bus which is actually, in some cases, even cheaper than a battery electric bus uh, or, very, or very close. And then, as you mentioned, uh, not far from a diesel hybrid bus. So I, I think it's absolutely very key if you want to, to drive up the adoption. And it was this industry consortium decided, okay, this is what we need to do. We are going to scale up. So we need to, to really get the price down. So every partners in the partnership look at the technology how to reduce the cost and a big part is volume to be able to produce in total 600 to 1000 buses uh, helps a lot uh, to, to drive the cost on the, on, on the supply chain and then in order to scale up uh, production also hydrogen to be able to, to reach those, those type of price but it's very important it's the first time that we can really say today in that project uh, if you look at the overall cost of TCO, because what is important in the total cost of ownership of a bus, the, uh, the battery electric bus, not only as a vehicle, but also you have all the charging infrastructure. In the price of the five to seven pound we discussed about, it includes all the production of hydrogen. It's already, so for the operator, it doesn't have to have extra cost. So if you look at the total cost of ownership, actually this, this provides the most competitive zero emission offer for a bus operator today. Glad you mentioned that, Nicholas, because that actually was going to be my next question was uh, was going to be about the comparative costs of charging infrastructure versus hydrogen refueling infrastructure. So that's uh, right on point for, for what I was going to ask about. But it also leads into the question of, and this is a big picture question when it comes to the mobility sector, there's some amount of comp- of direct competition, but there's also, I think, space in the mobility market for both battery electric and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles to be complementary, right? And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, how you see the two fitting in together, how you see them competing uh, in the coming years, but what's, uh, what's the dynamic between pure battery electric vehicles versus uh, the fuel cell vehicles? Oh, absolutely. I, I think the, in the future, uh, I will see vehicles in both technology. I think it will be driven by the application. Give you an example on the bus side. If you have a commuter bus, which is doing the morning service and the evening service, doing the, the peak hours, battery will work very well. School bus, perfect case for battery electric vehicle because you have two rounds and in the between you can charge your vehicle. But the bus which is on the road from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. on two shift, that bus is a perfect for fuel, for fuel cell electric. Truck, if you use the delivery trucks, which goes in the city in the morning and the evening uh, to do all the initial deliveries or at night, battery electric are perfect. But if you have the truck doing a bit of longer distance, doing the regional distribution, a bit of a highway speed, those trucks are the heavier trucks, uh, medium duty to heavy duty, fuel cell and hydrogen 
it's probably the, the, the best uh, the best option. So back to what I mentioned earlier, the longer the vehicle has to operate and the heavier the vehicle is, this is where hydrogen plays a pretty uh, deliver more value to the fleet of the vehicle operator. And a lighter vehicle, shorter drive cycle is perfect for battery. So I think that's where we probably see in the future the, uh, the split between the two. And also, it's going to be regional. It depends on the cost of electricity from place to place. Availability, you know, do you have, can you provide power to charge a vehicle? Can you get access to a hydrogen? So I think also the uh, either power supply and hydrogen supply will play also a role uh, in that choice of technology. One thing I just kind of wanted to to wrap up and give you a chance uh, and, and discuss, because I think from our standpoint, it's interesting to hear what Ballard's outlook is. Where are the, where from Ballard's standpoint, from your standpoint, where are the, the markets that you see the most growth in, in the next few years? Where's Ballard putting its, its chips in terms of uh, investment and projects and what, what's their primary focus? Which do you see as the key markets? So first today is really heavy duty mobility. So we really see bus, truck, rail and marine, uh, our core focus is a lot of commonality around the technology platform. So whatever we're developing in core module and core technology is usable across those vehicles. But honestly, if you look at the numbers of vehicles and the biggest impact also uh, will be on trucks. This is where you have the largest numbers of vehicles. Those vehicles have disproportional highest contribution to pollution. We start to see regulation. It was very interesting this week to see the uh, European Union, uh, the council as uh, today or was yesterday, has approved the first regulation on trucks for emission to cut down the emission of trucks. So I think we really see in terms of volume, uh, trucks is going to be the, uh, one, of the, one of the big focus for Ballard. Okay, great. Thank you very much for joining us from Denmark, Nicholas. <laughs> it's very kind of you. I know you're quite busy, so uh, it's uh, very very nice of you to take your time. No, that's okay. It's, it's a pleasure. Great. Well, look, Nicholas, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Cheers, Nicholas. Cheers. So, guys, uh, one of the things I thought was really interesting about uh, speaking with uh, Nicholas earlier was that he very specifically called out the fact that uh, Hydrogen fuel cell technology as part of a mobility system uh, is highly dependent upon or codependent upon battery technology and that the two uh, work very much together in terms of delivering a product that is efficient and cost effective. What do you guys think about that? Is How, how do you view that? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like I think, I think the you know the evolution of fuel cell uh, electric vehicles in particular um, is very much tied to the the evolution of battery electric vehicles. I, I you know I think these are interconnected kind of uh, markets lead to, lead us into some of the, the the really interesting spaces and opportunities that come with uh, within this sector. Uh, additionally, you know I think I think beyond anything else, you know. We haven't even if we've just stuck to mobility, and I have not heard the interview. Um, As you can tell, well, this yeah. is literally live off the press. Patrick yeah. hasn't even had time to do the marginal amount of work. Well, 
in any case. No, like th there's a whole host of, of other areas that there are, are similar interconnections and similar relationships, not, not only to, you know, in the mobility space, but when we go into power systems, when we look at other options, there, they, there is an interconnection around a lot of different technologies. And it's really good to hear that, that a company with the reputation of Ballard is, is happy to kind of point to the fact that these things are really, really critical to the evolution of the space. So does that mean from a company like Ballard's perspective or a company involved in hydrogen fuel cells as part of a mobility system or mobility platform, is the ever decreasing or constantly decreasing price of lithium ion battery technology, is that a double edged sword for them? Because it, A, as we approach the $100 per kilowatt hour, quote, tipping point for price parity with the uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. Uh, making battery electric vehicles competitive price-wise. Is that a double-edged sword as that happens? I mean, it makes hydrogen fuel cells as a vehicle platform more attractive, but it also, at the same time, makes their biggest competitor vastly more attractive. To say it's a double-edged sword is, 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 is not inaccurate, but it's also, I think, you know, you've got to realize that the... The success of battery electric vehicles is is a, is generally a good thing. It's something that we should all want, right? And it also will help uh, the rollout of fuel cell electric vehicles, albeit it will be in different spaces. So if batteries are efficient in one area, that does not necessarily mean that they will be efficient or effective to the same degree in another as another area for fuel cells. Um, I don't necessarily worry because I think the moment you convert a huge portion of the population to the idea that you need an electric vehicle, whether it's a battery electric vehicle or a fuel cell electric vehicle, they or have decided or both. They've decided to go electric, and that's a really, really positive aspect of it. No, I, I wouldn't disagree. I mean, I, I think maybe just moving the conversation off a little bit, I think one of the themes that actually Nicholas opened up is this codependency theme, right? I mean, there is this um, sometimes impression that technology. Um, sort of operates in a vacuum, and quite clearly that isn't the case. And, you know, it goes beyond simply batteries, right? I mean, it's also refueling infrastructure. It's also storage capability. It's, you know, all of these things playing into each other that are important. So, I, I mean, one of the things that, in a sense, was a little bit of a shame we didn't have time to talk to Nicholas about was if we talk about really heavy-duty applications for uh, fuel cells in mobility, if we just keep with the mobility theme for a little bit, you know, it's one thing to keep five kilos or 10 kilos of hydrogen in a fuel cell car, which is kind of what we're talking about today. It's just about manageable to do sort of 40, 50 kilos for buses, which depending on the exact bus model is also manageable. But once we start getting into the ferries or the heavy duty trucks, we're really entering into a different phase, right? And I mean, I think the concept ferries right now that are being looked at for sort of Scotland and for Norway are about 500 kilos, so half a ton of hydrogen at a go. You know, and, and to pressurize that is extremely difficult. I mean, it's not that it can't be done, it's being looked at, but if that actually is the right option or whether you should use some form of cryogenic, so super chilled hydrogen instead of just pressurizing all of it, if you do a hybrid of the two, if you use other different forms of storage, so some people talk about converting hydrogen into ammonia and running off that, that's an idea that's very popular in Australia, or even converting hydrogen into something like, um, so there's a the specific type of heating oil which is called, um, or can be called uh, liquid organic hydrogen carriers. So some ideas are around, well, maybe you can absorb hydrogen into that and that's easier to store. But I mean, you know, these are really important innovations, right? I mean, these are things that in terms of technology readiness are nowhere near as advanced as fuel cells, but are really essential to fuel cells getting 
the kind of supporting and enabling infrastructure to do a lot of these bigger picture things. Because it's one thing to say, yes, a fuel cell can power a several ton truck. It's another to say that actually all the other infrastructure around that is in place. And in a sense, I think we kind of missed the chance to really talk to him about that. So it'd be good to kind of make sure we touch on that the next time around, I think. So one of the things that I was talking with a friend of mine uh, who was at the Renewable Energy Practice Group or whatever they call it at Google, one of them, he and I were chatting this morning about... I like uh, that Renewable Energy Practice Group or whatever at Google. Well, he said the same thing. I want to be clear on that. It's like there, <laughs> He said something interesting today. He was talking about how the new projects he's working on at his new company are focusing on aerial applications. So, uh, so this is your next planes. Uber taxi, basically. <laughs> It's called Uber Elevate, dude. Oh, sorry. Trademark. It's already trademarked. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he was talking about that. So, and also, there are proposed applications for fuel cells in the aerospace markets as well. So, what do you guys know about that world? Drones? So is there an application there? Does it make sense? Answering every sci-fi fan's dream. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, like we've seen now, and, and, and you've spoken to specifically drones, but like another one that that's, there's more and more conversation around is uh, is hydrogen applications for for aviation and this isn't this isn't a joke this is this is really really serious now and it's and it's uh it's quite exciting because it adds a different dynamism and a different aspect to a market you that say we it's can really get. serious but you've got kind of a weird look on your face that yeah, indicates that maybe the, it's not actually that serious Listen, I, I I get excited by the fact that when you know you look at these things and you've got your your friend, your ex Google friend, who's looking at these applications, and you've got NASA coming out talking about aviation, you've got a whole host of other people talking about aviation, and you know these are the hard ones to address. Like these are the ones that are really really challenging. The amount of, amount of energy required is huge. And if if this is a solution that where we can effectively provide a, a decarbonized opportunity out of out of just changing the dynamics, using drones for different things, using uh, different style and type of aircraft. This is exciting stuff. Well, I mean, look, there's, there's, two, there's two things here. I mean, there's one which is the slightly less fantastical, which is, you know, Amazon are using fuel cell drones in their warehouses. Why? Because a fuel cell drone can stay in the air for an hour. Right, and then it will refuel in two, three minutes, and you're back up. Whereas a battery, I think drone now will do 15, 20 minutes. I think maybe a little bit better. So if there's an EV battery drone advocate who's listening to this show, who's jumping up and down, then apologies to them. But you know, in in a sense, there are already use cases that are being uh, made here, and I think some of the ones that were very interesting were structural uh, surveyors, for example, looking at dams and large infrastructure projects where you can essentially scan a huge piece of infrastructure. I know a lot of oil and gas companies are talking to um, fuel cell providers and drone manufacturers about the idea of long duration capabilities. People who also have to monitor for wildlife areas or deforestation also look at this. So I know some parts of Africa and even uh, certain regions of China are looking at drones to help monitor large areas. Um, So these are kind of the more immediate real term actual applications that are being looked at. But the more fantastical stuff someone was raising that I thought was really interesting was space. And Patrick alluded to sci-fi, but actually, if if we're looking at a satellite era and an era where much more activity will be going on in space and people will be traveling in space more and we're going to put more satellites up, people kind of forget, well, hydrogen is kind of the main fuel we used to get there. And one of the interesting points someone was saying is actually if, if space becomes a bigger thing that we do more of, Doing it in a green and sustainable way might a be in a nice pretty one. Pretty big thing, Chris. Well, but I mean, technically, it's endless. But I meant the, oh, okay, nice one. Um, but I meant in terms of the sheer volume of energy we actually use on it. Yeah, you can pat yourself on the back there, buddy. Nailed it. 
nailed it. In, in terms of the actual amount of energy you use, though, I mean, the thing that's interesting is, you know, at the moment, it is predominantly coming from natural gas, right? You know, so is it an interesting thing down the line to say, well, maybe down the line you're looking at like green hydrogen? I know we moved away a little bit from fuel cells, but actually fuel cells in space have been going on since the Gemini missions in the 1950s. If we're talking about colonies on Mars and all this sort of weird and wonderful concepts, these things are going to come up, right? And that's obviously well beyond the commercial five, 10-year time frame. But, you know, at some point, down the line, these things are going to come back up. So I think the drones thing and the whole aerospace sector sounds a bit ludicrous in a way, but there are use cases today that already make sense. And then there's this pie in the sky stuff where actually hydrogen fuel cells make total sense and in fact are already being used for those things. Just to be to drill down on that a little bit, I mean, it sounds a little bit fantastical, but that it's already happening. But who's who, I mean, beyond NASA and, and research institutions, uh, I mean, are there big names involved in that space? involved in the sense of using it for space you mean yeah aviation applications i mean are there are there practical commercial applications i mean you point to amazon as an internal user of uh fuel cell drones in their warehouses but are there you know is there a commercial is there a major manufacturer a major player who's who's applying these or or selling these in in large numbers well so i mean we, we sp- obviously nicholas talked a little bit about how they're entering into the uav market and ballard are providing fuel cells for the uav market but another big company that's doing this is intelligent energy in the uk and there's several um, fuel cell providers that are now working in this space you know we talked about structural surveyors i think one of the things that people are keenly aware of was uh, the fact that in a lot of mines in the world now a lot of hydro sites that they've just had this really scary report that came out i think it was bhp was doing an assessment of all of the dams that they have in the world and how secure they are and that sort of work is really high on people's radars now you know especially because of so many incidents that were very high profile in the infrastructure world like the bridge in Italy that collapsed for example you know people want to now see that these infrastructure assets are being monitored and traditional mechanisms of doing that are really expensive and difficult so if I can fly a drone that can stay in the air for long periods of time refuel quickly take photos or video of an entire space that would normally take weeks or months to be able to track and check effectively that isn't that has all sorts of really interesting applications that are commercial today and that save money yeah and, and as far as i'm aware and you've spoken to the the kind of the mining technology some some of those are are even a little more granular right so it's not even just they're taking a general survey a video or whatnot they're actually kind of looking at the the sizing shaping etc noticing different types of features etc so like there's very very cool drone-based software out there. I think the really cool part of the, and, and Chris mentioned this around the Amazon uh, kind of drones, is it's about the range and longevity of, of the use, right? And that's, what's, that's what the, the kind of relative advantage is. If you can actually do one solid run that covers everything versus having to come back and forth and do it multiple times. That's, that's, that's a... That's a really solid kind of, kind of point in all, in, in all of this. But None, nonetheless, you asked about, uh, you know, is there anybody outside of like the NASA's of the world looking at aviation and whatnot? I think everybody's interested in this space. It's just much, much earlier. Like we've had how many years and decades of, of you know, fuel cell vehicles being being kind of researched and developed, right? Mm-hmm. Now we're into the point where we're talking about aviation. We're talking about kind of high levels of thrust. We're talking about different sub-use cases, et cetera. That's, that's much earlier. But it's still very encouraging because it says that a lot of the other aspects of the sector that have been, you know, kind of fixed or addressed or worked out 
now are making these areas actually applicable to the technology. And there are, by the way, hydrogen planes. I mean, there is. I mean, the earliest one of this is the uh, HY4 in Germany, which is a hydrogen plane that is running today that you can use. Um, there was also, I think, a story in the press a little while ago about um, another drone, but passenger drone prototype that's out there. So it's very, very early, and you're right, Patrick, to flag that. Um, but you know, I remember speaking to a couple of uh, individuals working in Norway, looking at um, some of the short haul flights in Norway, where it's a low number of passengers, short distances. And where actually um, being able to generate fuel in a remote location has a real advantage. And a number of them were very bullish on the idea of, you know, maybe, you know, by the 2030 period, it is not inconceivable that you could have fuel cell solutions powered with hydrogen that are actually providing a lot of the aviation solutions in these kind of short haul small number of passenger markets. And I think, you know, it, it's also, we, we also forget because it seems like it's a sacrilegious thing to talk about or maybe people are funny about it, but the military have been looking at fuel cell applications for a long time. I mean, we haven't talked about that, but I mean, take something like um, fuel cells and submarines, which is a really controversial but interesting concept at the moment, which Siemens have been very heavily involved in if you want a big name. Um, you know, one of the advantages of a nuclear submarine today is that it's an electric um, it's an electric power solution, right? So in terms of the actual um, impact that it has on a submarine in the water, it's very, very hard to detect because it's electrical, it's not thermal, um, and because it's also not a combustion-based process. Where, yeah, and there's no generator, there's no turbine, so exactly less resonance. So it's much, much, much harder to track a nuclear submarine than it is to track a diesel submarine. So one of the things that's been going on for a long time is, well, hang on, what if I have a hydrogen fuel cell submarine? You know, and this isn't science fiction. This is stuff that people have been actively looking into and investing in a long time. And you can have almost the same level of stealth capability that you'd have on a nuclear Yeah, sub. but I want to push back there a little bit, right? Sure. Uh, you know, I believe it was uh, Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu who famously said that uh, uh, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles have a very bright future and they always will. Yeah, it's a little bit yeah. tongue in cheek there. And, uh, but I think, and, and, you know, I, I don't want to be as cynical as that statement, but le- uh, the question that I think comes to mind when you say people have been investing in this technology for a very long time, that's great. But uh, I mean, what is, it seems to me that they've been investing in it for a very long time with perhaps not as much to show for it as as one would I, like. I mean, uh, that's the question, right? Well, I mean, the interesting thing that you mentioned, Stephen Chu, is that actually, like many people, he came out this, this year. Fact actually, check me right now. <laughs> well, is that a four Pinocchio scenario? Well, I mean, one of the interesting things is that Stephen Chu did actually come out this year and say, you know, it, providing hydrogen can get to a certain cost point. Actually, a lot of my previous assumptions I take back and actually that he can see a pathway to getting to that. And it's not just Stephen Chu, by the way. I mean, there was a great piece out um, in this June talking about the father of battery electric vehicles in China, the guy who bought battery electric vehicle concepts and all the subsidies to China. And now he's gone to the Chinese government and said, we now need to do this with fuel cells because fuel cells are the future. And, you know, I mean, just because we talked about the energy gang a little bit last time, can't resist avoiding it this time. But for example, Jigga Shah, who, you know, I, when I was a lowly student, I kind of bumped into and rambled something about hydrogen. And he said, yeah, sure, sounds nice. Tell me in a few years time. Well, Jigga Shah's Generate Capital put $100 million into plug power this year. Right. So well, quite a lot of it's players. It's been a few years time, Chris. I think he's, <laughs> apparently he was dead well, on. Sure. Yeah, but uh, like, look, let's not make light of the fact that there have been pretty sizable advances, both in terms of of the actual kind of the process of, of building out these systems, integrating these systems. There have been sizable increases in capacity, sizable increases in, or improvements in the technology and in the efficiencies that you see. Like, 
what what was a, a very uh, cynical position maybe a few years ago, there's enough reason for at least a re-examination in many, many cases. And, you know, is is this the be-all, end-all and, and everything is fine and rosy and this is it? We're not there yet. We're not the, absolutely there yet, but we are starting to see use cases emerge where these these technologies have very distinct value propositions where they are competitive and where, you know, realistically, if you're if you're looking at a certain profile for the future, makes an awful lot of sense. Then as consequence of those successes and those opportunities, you're going to look at other fields where there might be application. And that's why like we should be optimistic. Yes, we should be diligent to make sure we're not looking at something and, and just assuming, but like there's a lot of opportunity around this. Much of the work that I do is particularly focused on identifying the use cases where it makes sense today and looking at the differences between these things. And this is why it's exciting because finally we have applications that are provable that demonstrate value and the question is where next yeah. good question and, and it is a good question and i mean i think um one thing that also made me laugh is that you know um for example even individuals like our uh, president trump for example uh it can be won over by I he has a engineering degree uh focused primarily on renewable energy and, and zero emission vehicles, right? Is that oh, it was interesting. I thought his engineering degree was in financial restructuring for failed real uh, estate businesses, but carried, maybe I'm wrong. Carried losses, I think, is actually the particular. Well, well, there you go. No, but um, I think uh, one of the things that was interesting, for example, is that um, actually there was a fuel cell company whose technology last year, uh, Donald Trump um, issued an official statement saying, um, development no of this te- <laughs> no no the development of this particular technology and the production of it within the US was a national security consideration and that it should be taken as such by the Department of Defense and by members of the armed forces which you know I think is quite an interesting sign of where a lot of these things are going and we were looking at the Nikola website earlier and in addition to the trucks that they do that are well known but there are a number of military applications that they do there and so I think it is one of these things of like including a jet ski by the way which I think we want to come back to at some point maybe not for this episode but maybe if they give us a chance to actually use the jet ski although we have to caveat that that is an electric not a fuel I mean my my support is for yeah, give it a very shot. much for sale so you know <laughs> if they're listening I'm happy to happy to support it if they're going to give me a test drive yeah I mean look I, I think the other thing as well here is that um, a little bit like um, with the uh, battery electric vehicles when you first got into them I mean there is kind of like a, a cliche here of once you've got into an electric vehicle you never go back to something else right and actually if you ever got into a tesla and tried driving a tesla it's very hard to go back to a regular sports car afterwards because the pickup is so unbelievably quick and they are an amazing Speaking from experience teslas yeah. have you driven buddy i've driven enough but they're good fun and, and have you gone back well, I've never. Well, I think I owned one car, which was a sort of very reliable he's been, Volkswagen. He's owned Golf. one car. It was a Tesla. Yeah, exactly. And it was he's great. Never gone back. No, but I mean, I tell you what. If you, uh, I was driving a Model X in Edinburgh. I think it was uh, that. Yeah, it was a Model X. Um, I was with a with a bunch of guys, and we were we did a trade with the Tesla office up there. We could. Uh, we would show them the wind farm that we were developing if they'd let us drive the Model X up to the wind farm. So um, I think one of the things that's quite fun is that when people actually get a chance to sort of see these things and play with them up close, right? Like see what fuel cells can do up close or see what batteries can do up close. There is no 
there is a much more profound appreciation for them because otherwise it all sounds so abstract, right? I mean, one of the big things that I found really weird and wonderful to consider at the moment is I'm working on a report with the World Bank and we've been looking at trying to find interesting photos. It's really hard to find a photo that encapsulates what hydrogen is because you can't really photograph the stuff, right? And just taking a photograph of a canister or of some sort of tubing just doesn't really mean anything. So it's quite hard for people to visualize what it is. And, you know, a photo of a fuel cell as well in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that much to people in the same way that a wind turbine or a solar panel has that kind of very visceral thing. So I think having something that people can put in their hands, whether it's drones or whether it's going to be cars or just just that kind of lived experience makes a difference. And I mean, when you talk to, and we didn't talk to Nicholas about this, but actually the oldest London fuel cell buses are powered by Ballard power systems. People have been using fuel cell buses for a very long time. And one of the amazing things is that people probably have never noticed it. To that point, is it simply a matter of pricing that and you know some advances in, in technolo- uh, technological advances uh, that make, if they've been building these buses for so long and people have been using them for so long, why is there so much hype and discussion about them now? Well, I mean, if you look at a, if you look at a Ballard fuel cell bus um, that came out in 2010, it was $2 million a bus, right? At the end of the next EU drive program, the buses are due to be at 460,000 euros. So that's what, $550,000. Today, the latest order in the UK was around $600,000. So that's in nine years from $2 million to 600000 Their bus in China already going for sub $500,000. And I think Nicholas today was saying that by the end of their latest uh, announcement, the latest consortium, they're going to be below $400,000. So give you a sense of the price decline to your point. I feel point. like that was a pedantic way of saying, yes, Andrew, it was price. Oh, absolutely. But okay. price has been a big part, but also so has lifetime, right? Fair enough. Yeah. I think I think that's the more the more crucial piece because those early generation buses from my understanding are essentially oversized relative to the buses that are produced today. The ones in London are yeah, I yeah. don't know if that's necessarily been the case for all places, but the ones in London had a specific mandate and you know, we'll probably hopefully get on some of the guys who are involved in the early bus projects, but one of the takeaways that they mentioned was that when it comes to resiliency, that was a big consideration in the early days, was that fuel cells didn't have a great track record. And so you're right, they slightly oversized them. But today, there are fuel cell buses in London that have done over 34,000 hours. It's a testament to the technology's kind of improvement in terms of efficiency. But but the, the other aspect that I'm just trying to speak to, when we talk about the cost decline, some of that cost decline isn't because the technology back then wasn't actually good enough. It was a case of you had to build in a resiliency that actually pushed up the prices. That's so true. we're actually going to see more efficient in, uh, vehicles in terms of sizing. You're going to see scale reduce the actual uh, kind of cost of each unit. And, and consequently, we're going to see the things that we want. Excellent, guys. You've been listening to Everything About Hydrogen. We'd love to hear from our listeners and hear about what you guys are interested in. And you can reach us anytime at podcasts, that's podcast plural, at inspiratia.com. We hope you'll join us for the next episode. 